Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Our guest for today's episode is Dan Davidovitz, who is a portfolio manager at Poland Capital, uh, a growth specialist. Uh, sort of, I don't know how many assets they have, but they're based down in Boca Raton, Florida. Worst places to work, I think we could all agree. Yeah, like, uh, like London. Um, <laughs> uh, is is our, our first interview with a fan? Well, our first interview with a, a confessed fan, you know, the, um, there may be some, some, some closet fans out there, but no, Dan, uh, as he told us, is a, I think more than a fan, a, a super fan, claims to have listened to every episode, um, which is, you know, lovely to hear, frankly. But the, the cynic in me thinks he was just saying that to, to disarm us so we'd go easy on him. But we're professionals and it worked, it worked perfectly. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was too easy for him. Uh, no, it was good. It was a great interview. Um, very nice guy, very open. Nice um, to find out who our, our one listener was. I, <laughs> I, I used to think it was my wife, but we could clearly have some stern words when I get home. Checked with my wife, she's, she's very open that she's never listened to anything that I've done, um, both podcasts and otherwise. Um, but yeah, look, Dan was a great guest. Really enjoyed having him on. Um, growth specialist, concentrated portfolio, you know, very much, you know, into compounding, buy and hold, you know, take, take the growth each year. Um, but as he explained to us, that wasn't always his style. He started off as a sort of, you know, deep value guy, shifted to this style of investing. And to be honest, as, as, he, as he explains with his sort of, you know, his big mistake, he, he didn't quite get it right at first. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, he's, he's, he's changed his stripes. Very successful with this fund, by the way, shouldn't go without saying for, for those not in the US, who possibly aren't aware of it. One of, if not the best US uh, equity growth funds over the last sort of five years. So done phenomenally well, had a lot of mistakes. Uh, which is what we like on this show. Dan, rather than that specific fund, we should we should specify. Um, yeah, and I think we'll, we'll come on to these in a minute, but, you know, a couple of the ones uh, to sort of tease them, I suppose, around when to sell, sort of sell discipline, which I think is something that every investor to some degree struggles with. And then also we touch on sort of being emotionally tied to stocks and how that can impair one's judgment. Um, but look, I think without further ado, Dan Davidovitz. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us today um, from... Sunny Florida, I've got that right. Then we're, we're, we're in. I'm in freezing New York, and Frank is. I'm assuming it's grey in in the UK. Oh yeah, it's grey. It's delivering. <laughs> it's grey. Um, so look, yeah, we start this in the same way every time. Um, biggest investment mistake you've made, and and crucially though, what you learned from it. Now I know you've had a a varied, you know, a, a longish career and a varied career, and sort of you've been two very different types of managers. I don't know if that sort of feeds into this, but yeah, what uh, what leaps out to you? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Alex and Frank, for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I do listen to all of these podcasts. I, I find them to be uh, one. Very, maybe that's your biggest. Maybe that's your. Maybe biggest that was thing. my biggest mistake. No, it's <laughs> it's it's really great because one, I think I learn a lot from listening to to you guys and your guests, and it is very entertaining. Uh, I find them to be very entertaining, and it's a great way just, to just for the listener. We haven't paid down to say this. Is he not, saying not yet? Anyway. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. Um, but no, I and. and I have a, an interesting background because I started in healthcare. I worked in hospitals, uh, and then I ended up uh, becoming a value investor in the uh, in the tech bubble, basically. And then a few years later, became a growth investor, a compounder growth investor, and I've been doing that now for 16 years. And so, you know, my career has had a couple of different uh, periods, different types of investing, and and I think that's what you're alluding to, Alex, is that that transition from value to growth and there's a lot of mistakes along the way. I mean, there's so many mistakes along the way and I could talk about a lot of them and I continue to make a lot of mistakes as, as most investors do. You, you learn and hopefully minimize the impact of your errors. But 
um, you don't stop making mistakes. So hopefully I can continue to learn. But one of the things that I think I learned in the transition from going from value to growth uh, is um, valuation is important, but you really have to understand uh, the, the ability for companies to compound when you're taking in valuation into consideration. So when I was a value investor, we were investing in low PE, low price to book type companies, right? And, and trading at big discounts uh, to the market. And what you find in, the, in that world is a lot of broken companies and there's not a lot of growth in those companies. So measuring intrinsic value seems easy on those companies, but oftentimes the businesses are actually deteriorating on an economic basis. And so trying to get valuation right on what's like a melting uh, ice cube is not always easy, um, but it was interesting. But I realized that for me, that wasn't my personal investment philosophy. I wanted to align myself with companies that could just grow for long periods of time, and then you can just ride along with them. And eventually I found Poland Capital, um, who had been doing this for over 20 years already with a concentrated high quality growth portfolio. And, and I. You know, I won't go through the whole process of how I got here, but I basically begged and pleaded for David Poland, our founder, to to hire me, and he did. Luckily for me, so when I when I got here, uh, David Poland, um, you know, already had a great portfolio and a few analysts working uh, for him already, and you know, the universe of companies he was looking at was so small. I was trying to find something that they hadn't really spent any time on, and I and I found Nike, and this is in two thousand six. Right, everybody already knows who Nike is, but it wasn't covered you by Poland Capital. Right. Everybody knows who Nike is, even in 2006. And and, and no, they, but they weren't covering it. They never had owned it before. And I was doing work on it. And it, it looked like a really great company to me. All the things that we already know about Nike. Uh, and at the time, for whatever reason, had been left behind uh, in the market. It was trading up 15 times earnings when the rest of the market was, it was trading at a slight discount to the S&P 500. All these great growth companies trading at bigger valuations. And I ended up doing a lot of research on it and recommended to David that we buy it. Now, I've only I had only been here a few months at the time. And David proceeded to tell me, no, and never going to invest in that kind of a company. It's just a brand. There's no real competitive advantage and, you know, going on and on and on. And so I kept doing more work, more work, trying to prove that it was worthy. And eventually, you know, he relented and said, OK, yeah, maybe it is a better company than I think. And, and I'm a value guy. Right. And I'm saying this is cheap and good and can grow and we buy it. And then within six months, the stock price is up 50%. And so I said to David, it's time to sell it. You know, we got three years worth of return in six months, time to sell it. And he was completely baffled by my logic there, just completely confused by it. You know, he'd been owning compounders for years and years and years. He had never sold anything in six months, you know, that was, that was working, you know? And so, you know, he just couldn't understand it. And I kept telling him it's time to sell it, time to sell it. Cause you know, this is my first recommendation. I want it to go right. I don't want to give back the return. And he, he kept hearing me for months. And eventually after it, finally we had held it for about a year, he said, okay, fine. You've been telling me my analyst to sell this, I'm going to sell it. And then I'm going to tell you every day why it was a huge mistake. And so we sold it. We banked that kind of 50% or whatever. And then every day he proceeded to tell me, you know, Nike's a fantastic company. It's competitive advantages are strongly attacked. He had kind of given me back Sounds like he was listening. Yeah, he had given me back basically my investment thesis on it and proceeded to berate me about it. And, and you know, the interesting thing to me was I was like, all right, he's trying to teach me a lesson. I get it. But, you know, fine, we'll find other things. Well, you know, for years and years and years, as I continue to follow Nike, I'm, I'm making excuses why we shouldn't own it again. 
right? Well, now it's a little bit expensive or maybe there's going to be a slowdown coming, whatever. I'm making excuses because my bias is, you know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it again. You know, we, we were successful here. Let's move on to something else. And he really almost every single day would tell me why this was a, a mistake. And, and lo and behold, five years later, we bought it back at double the price that we sold it at <laughs> five years before. And, and we still own it today. So uh, we've owned it for many, many years. Now this is where 10 years on the second go around with Nike and it continues to compound. So it's not a huge mistake in that we lost money, but it's a huge mistake in, in opportunity cost, which we've done you know, as, as compounder investors that invest in businesses with big competitive advantages and, and very strong balance sheets, we don't make big errors of commission, right? Because these businesses are already fantastic businesses. But we do make a lot of errors of omission. And this is the type. You have to remember that um, compounders have this kind of rising floor of earnings that just keep coming up, 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 up. So valuations can get cheap in a hurry. So even if it looks like it's a little high, within a few months, that valuation comes right back down again. Because for a while, it sound, when you started telling the story, I was like, I think you've misunderstood the concept. It sounds like... <laughs> You were telling us you moved to a great company, you picked a great stock, the stock went. I was like, um, I'll be honest, Dan, there needs to be a mistake here somewhere. Um, but yes, yeah, yeah, so, 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 no, no, it's, it's good. <laughs> it, it, no, no, it's, I'm joking mostly. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so ultimately the mistake was, was the recommendation was good, but 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 then you still had your sort of, you'd, you'd, you hadn't fully transitioned from that value mindset, perhaps. You still yeah. had that, like, you know, get the win. You were still sort of think, thinking, not, not in the kind of growthy compoundy way. And the mistake was effectively yeah. missing out on those five years or whatever well, it was. The mistake uh, is not understanding compounding. Right. And so, and this is, I, I find this even in, you know, very experienced professional investors sometimes really don't understand the power of compounding. And if you have companies that can compound earnings growth at double digit rates for decades, which is basically what happens with a company like Nike, a, a PE multiple, you can, you know, I, I was paying 15 times for it. I could have paid 25 times and still done really, really well. When Google came public, you could have paid well over 100 times earnings when it came public and still got beaten the S&P 500. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the other big lessons that you think you've learned as your time as portfolio manager? Yeah, I, I think um, sticking to your discipline and really because there's a there's a natural excitement to trying to broaden your um, circle of competence and try to to do things that um, seem pretty exciting that are new and interesting, right? Like you give know, give us an example. Everything in Kathy Wood's portfolio, or <laughs> not, maybe not everything, uh, you know. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of great businesses growing up today still in the United States, which is where my focus is. My focus is in the United States and and. There are some amazing businesses that just hit the ground running, have a really interesting growth trajectories and competitive advantages, but sometimes they're hard to understand and you have to know your own limitations to some degree. So, you know, we're trying to build up our knowledge slowly on a, a lot of things in fintech, right? Cryptocurrency, blockchain, um, you know, buy now, pay later, uh, account to account type things. One, because we own a lot of the, the incumbent payment companies like Visa, MasterCard and PayPal. And we want to know if there are interesting opportunities, you know, going forward. But a lot of this is still emerging. So we don't need to be the first to do anything. And 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 so I, I think we've learned a few times that, you know, you get out over your skis a little bit when you think you understand something that you don't. Or, or um, when you have a narrative about something, but the facts may not match that 
narrative. So here, here's another one, and this one's for you, Alex, because this is a real mistake. That I hey, it was a mistake too. I was, I was, I was, I was only teasing. No, but here, here, I had this one ready too because I knew that the first one was a little bit too soft. So just take it recently. You know, in in March 2020, when when COVID lockdown started to really happen, and shelter in place really started to happen, we had that really rapid drawdown, not unlike we're having right now. Uh, we had in in that March period. And we were reevaluating all of the holdings in our portfolio. And we only owned at the time 21, 22 holdings. So it doesn't take us very long to say, okay, what's the COVID impact, the shelter in place impact going to be on, on our companies. And for most of our companies, not much of an impact or a transitory impact that we knew wouldn't last very long. But we also owned O'Reilly Automotive at that time. And for those who don't know O'Reilly, uh, O'Reilly operates thousands of stores um, that sell auto parts. Uh, to professional mechanics and also to the public who like to work on their own cars. It's been a fantastic compounder for a number of years. It's a very stable uh, business and it's got you know nice growth, uh, mid to high single digit revenue growth, a little bit of margin expansion every year. And then they buy back a lot of stock. Their balance sheet has a little bit more leverage than what we like, but not a lot of leverage. And so it's a good business. We like it, but it, it's maturing. Uh, and then when COVID happened, all of a sudden, we said, uh-oh, you know, people are going to drive their cars less, which means less need to get them repaired because repairs usually are from long use of your car. So less traffic to O'Reilly stores, but the O'Reilly stores are going to have to stay open. So their expenses are going to be high, which means their cash flow is going to come down. They may not be able to buy back as much stock. They may have to pay down debt. We had created this whole narrative basically around COVID. And so we said, we got to sell the, sell the stock. You know, we had owned it for years and years and years and we sold it. And none of that came true. Like literally none of that thesis came true. You know, you say like cars, cars went crazy, right? Like went crazy, went right? Crazy. Everybody spent time working on their cars. It was like, in, a fa- in, in fairness to you, I think the boards of every single legacy automaker in the world had exactly the same thoughts that you did at that time. Well, the, I mean, I, I think though, you know, we had created this narrative, right? And we didn't know what was going to happen and, and we kind of extrapolated it. And when you start to extrapolate, do you hear the line of thinking that I had? People won't drive cars. Their cars won't break down as much. They won't go to O'Reilly. Cash flow goes down. Like we, all of those things would actually have to happen for it to be a problem. Like if any anything that broke in that chain of events didn't happen, O'Reilly would be just fine. And so, and, and it turns out O'Reilly was more than just fine. The traffic to their stores actually went up. Yeah, they ended up um, having this boom in business. It's the exact opposite of what we thought. So, uh, but you did sell. We did sell. Now, lucky Completely for us, or just some of it? Or? Sold the whole position. And lucky for us, we did buy on the other side uh, a, a company called Autodesk, which is a software company for manufacturing, architectural, and construction businesses that have been hit quite hard as well because their customers are quite cyclical and everybody thought this would be really bad for them. And it turns out they have a subscription SaaS-like business model, so it wasn't nearly as bad. And so we were at least right on the other side of the transaction. But yeah, I mean, the logic, as I even talk it through, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that narrative that we had created that was so far off. On the sort of what you do now, and you touched on it yourself, is it, it seems much more the mistakes are in the selling than in the buying. Like you said, like, you know, the companies aren't going to be bad. It's just, it, it seems to be more uh, a selling mistake, which is interesting because I think generally people, and when we've, you know, done, as you know, having listened to every episode, yeah, every episode. you know, people tend to people tend to listen to people tend to talk more about buying mistakes, right? You know, bought this at the wrong price or or, or, or whatever. I'm interested to, to to go back to your your days as a value investor. Was it different then? Was it much yeah. more about were, were all the mistakes then 
in the decision to buy a firm. And, and now it really is all about yeah. when you sell because the companies just aren't going to be terrible. When I was in the value shop, everything started with valuation. So you were screened for cheap stocks. That's really what the screen was. Like what's trading at a big discount to the S&P 500? And then let's figure out if it's good enough for us to own, you know, and then is it available at a price where we think we can capture a little bit of a valuation gap, right? You know, we can close that gap from uh, market value to intrinsic value. And so, yeah, what we would, the mistakes that we would make is a little bit of overconfidence that the business was as good as it was, right? So I, I'm thinking back to, man, this is really testing my, my memory a little bit, but back into early 2000s, um, I remember um, recommending and then our firm buying Dow Chemical back then, right? And Dow Chemical, um, a cyclical commodity chemical business back then, and um, had a massive potential asbestos liability uh, and Agent Orange liability. They had bought Union Carbide, which um, had produced Agent Orange. There was these massive litigation. Just words that you love to see in company earnings, right? Oh, Just, yeah. yeah. And, and the 10K was like 9 million pages long, right? And you had to go through all their pension liability. It, it was, you know, so terrible. And I would, I had this like bold call basically that this, that the, they'd be able to kind of wall off the asbestos liabilities and everything. And that it wouldn't bankrupt the company essentially. And if it didn't bankrupt the company, there'd be this massive intrinsic value unlocked. And, and it turns out I was right, but just by sheer luck, like it wasn't, there wasn't any really good logic to this. It's just the way the cookie crumbled with litigation. And so we ended up doing okay. But when I think back on that, it could have easily been a zero. Like, and it, you know, it was like 50, 50 chance. There was no, and so those kind of mistakes would happen and sometimes you'd think you were so you know brilliant because it didn't happen, but the reality was it was just dumb luck. What about the the the, the stress of it for, for for a moment? Like it sound, was because because I think a colleague of ours spoke to you back in twenty sixteen, and, and that's what we sort of you know, we talked about you know moving from value and how how you know it wasn't you know the sort of deep value and how it wasn't for you was part of it. Like was it just really stressful? Yeah. <laughs> like, so stressful, but not stressful because you were worried so much about the companies, although you were, right? Because you never knew. There, there were companies back then, like I remember recommending pharmaceutical distri distribution companies like Cardinal Health and McKesson back then. These are companies that had like 0.9% profit margins. And so if something went wrong, they're all of a sudden hemorrhaging money. So you would worry about stuff like that. Uh, but more, the, more of the concern was, am I going to be able to keep finding these good ideas. It was very stressful because, and, and they had a more diversified portfolio here at Poland Capital. We run 20, 25 companies, but back then we were running, you know, 45 companies and you were selling them if they got to your price target, right? Which we don't have price targets here, but there you'd have a price target. And if the stock went up 20%, kind of like my Nike story, you sell it. And then you have to find another one and keep repeating, keep repeating. And I don't come that up with that conveyor belt of just like each week or month, knowing that you're probably going to have like it, yeah, knowing that you have to keep finding new ideas yeah. and they have and, to work. And if right? that happens, right, if you know you constantly have to replace your uh, um, your judgment on what's good enough starts to come down, right? Because you're like, I just need to fill holes in the portfolio. We have cash. We have cash. I need to plug it with something. So you start to bring your qualifications down <laughs> for some of those businesses. So you end up on this like self-fulfilling, lower quality uh, portfolio where here we don't have that problem, right? And so... Yeah, the stress is different. Have you ever been wrong, really wrong, when you thought fundamentals at whilst you're at Pollen looked sound in the business? 
and, and you thought it was heading in, in the right direction and you had to totally change your thesis as a result? Um, not really. I mean, we haven't really, we've had a couple of instances over the years where we bought a company and then said, yeah, you know what, maybe it's not as good as we thought. And we turn around and exit it relatively quickly, but those tend to be, you know, no, no gain, no loss really in the portfolio. When that happens, it's just like, you know what, maybe this isn't as strong as we thought. There, there was one uh, a few years ago and that we're still on the wrong side of uh, where I think our original investment thesis was right, but we got turned around on our own thinking a little bit. So a few years ago, um, I had recommended to, to our team uh, NVIDIA. And, uh, and this is, you know, before the, you know, the metaverse and everything today, uh, and before they try to buy ARM, this is years, years ago, when they were really starting to get into the data center, right? So if you don't know NVIDIA, NVIDIA makes uh, design semiconductor chips that are used mostly for gaming, high-end gaming, and they dominate that industry. Uh, then they had and, and other high-performance computing things where you really need real horsepower, uh, even better than what an Intel chip can give you. And uh, they were starting to uh, create similar chips to be used in, in data centers for companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft to run uh, AI, right? Machine learning and AI. And, and that was a really interesting use case. And, and they were already about a $3 billion revenue run rate in the data center when we you know, were doing the work on it and we decided to buy it. We felt the gaming business, even though it's cyclical, would be a pretty good growth business, maybe slower than before, but still good. The data center business was really going to take off. Uh, and then there was potentially other stuff we weren't even counting for, like uh, autonomous vehicles, which would use their chips as well. And so uh, we had this great thesis that there would be less cyclicality. NVIDIA has historically been a pretty cyclical business. And around that same time, people were starting to use some of those chips for cryptocurrency mining. So, you know, this is even before the latest big craze in crypto. This is the last big craze in crypto and Ethereum mining, especially. And so there was a, a mess up, like people were buying these gaming chips to do Ethereum mining, and it was making it hard to see the true demand uh, inside of NVIDIA. And so we waited for all of that to be done, you know, waited for crypto to kind of die down again. And then we bought the company and, it, you know, that thesis of great gaming franchise, data center, big market share, big growth markets. And we bought it. And then immediately within one or two quarters, the wheels fell off the wagon and they're they're gaming business started to decline. Their data center business started to decline. Like everything we had said was not going to be cyclical was now hyper cyclical within one or two quarters. And it turned out the cryptocurrency issue was still reverberating through their supply chain and messing up supply demand imbalances for their chips. The data center, uh, it turned out was just a temporary slowdown as there's really just a few big vendors that are or customers that are buying from NVIDIA that all paused around the same time. And, and, and we just said, uh-oh, <laughs> what's going on here? Maybe the, our investment thesis isn't correct. And, and so we, when we would talk to the company or we would try to do our own um, independent research, we really weren't getting great answers on what the problem was. And we started to feel very uncomfortable. And so we just sold the position. I bet you're, and, but you're not happy about that now. You, do, do you own it? No. We don't own it now. Um, it, it's, we were, our timing on the buy, and our, our rationale on the buy was good. Our timing was poor. Uh, our, our rationale and timing on the sale was poor uh, and we continue to cover it uh, I, I, right now we don't own it but it's definitely one that we're interested in now one of the things that we do to try to undo bias at Poland Capital because now you know I'm the one who did the research on it and the one who selected it and now feels terrible about it so now we give the coverage to somebody else so now you know one of my colleagues 
covers it and he's the one doing a lot of research on it. We all work together. So you, on you take away some of that um, sort of yeah. ownership and yeah. sort of, um, yeah. Put a fresh pair of eyes it. on it. Yeah. You want a fresh pair of eyes and someone who's really going to take it from like, I, I don't have any, any feelings about this. Um, you, Dan, you've been, you've been very upfront about this, uh, about, about lots of different things, um, different types of mistakes and, and what have you. And we, we, we touched on this actually, uh, before we started recording listener again, little secret. Sometimes we, we chat before we hit record. You may not have known that. Um, <laughs> and you sort of, you, you sort of joked around sort of some of, some of the people aren't always forthcoming about, about their mistakes. And so, you know, oh, I did something when I was 12 and what have you. You know, you've you've been in this industry for for, for a decent amount of time and, and worked at a variety of shops and different styles and things. Why why do you have any insights to why you think that is? Why why investors? I, I mean, beyond just pride, are sort of maybe not as um, open with these things. And I suppose is it just is it only when you're doing well that it's easy to <laughs> to, well, to be humble? Or uh, <laughs> in my experience. Um... There's not a lot of humble people in our industry, uh, and it's and it's a it's a sad part of the industry. I mean, you've had some really great guests who actually have quite a bit of humility, I think. Um, but I I think people are afraid to let their guard down a little bit. Our industry is based on trust a lot uh, between us and our clients, especially, and so I think people are a little bit afraid to admit that they're human and that they actually make mistakes because they feel like people won't trust them. The other thing is. You know, we have a scoreboard in our industry every day, right? You, you can look at um, every day. You can see what the, the Poland Growth Fund did every single day, and people internalize that as uh, a view of themselves. You know, and that that scoreboard reflects them. And if it's not going in the right direction, and people are questioning them, they're questioning the the purpose and validity of yourself. And um, and I admit, I went through a period like that too, especially when David Poland passed away, which is ten years ago, and and I took over. Um, as the head of the team, uh, I felt that too. Like people are looking at me to make sure that I'm doing this correctly. And, and the reality is that's not what's happening. <laughs> They're looking at the portfolio. They really care you know, that, the, that the portfolio is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And um, you have to, it's hard to separate yourself from your product. And I think- How, you know, how do you get there? How, how do you do that? Is it just experience? Is it, um, well, yeah, is it time in the job or how? I don't know. Do I think like, talk, there was, talk to someone about it. I mean, how, how do you get to a place where you can sort of, there is a time, I, I think there's a, a number of things. It's talking to experienced people. It's um, it is your own experience. You have to go through some of this stuff on your own. And then I, I, I had met a former CEO. This one kind of drove it home for me. I met the former CEO of a fortune 500 company. We just happened to be at a, a, a philanthropic event together. And, um, and I, I introduced myself to him and, uh, I said, you know, you're very, you were a very successful business person. And what, what kind of advice do you give to young people? At the time, I was still in my 30s. You know, what kind of uh, advice do you give to young, uh, young people in the industry? And he's like, don't believe your own bullshit. You're not as important as you think you are. And I, that resonated with me. And that, it was around the same time I was going through this kind of catharsis of, of all of these things. And, and I said, yeah, that's right. You know, if you watch like... Uh, when I have a, I used to watch earnings reports come in for our companies and the stock be down, you know, 10 or 15%. And I, you know, when I was a, a young analyst and I would say, why is this happening to me? You know, I was like, it's not happening to you. It's just happening. <laughs> you know, and, you know, the, the company reporting earnings doesn't care what Dan Davidowitz thinks. doesn't care. You know, it's not about you. This is just happening. And you're, you're just an observer. Right? You know, take yourself out of it. You're not that important. 
Well, that was our interview with Dan and Frank. Yeah, a lot in there. What what jumped out to you? Yeah, loads in there. Having to rewire his mind and rewire his biases from when he was a, a deep value manager, where he was basically picking terrible businesses and hoping they would have some kind of re-rating. And he said when they did, it was often just dumb luck. Yeah, and but but I think obviously he was ready to make that move, but but, but when he did. The selling part of it, he hadn't quite got his head around, perhaps. And, and the example that he gave us with Nike, clearly, you know, his old style of investing was about getting out at the right time. Whereas, uh, you know, his new style was, you know, maybe about never getting out at all. But he, you know, it, it took him this this this, this particular uh, stock, this mistake to kind of realize that actually, you know, the hold part is important of, of buy and hold. And, and he obviously sold too early. He still made significant money out of it, obviously, but, but, but both times. I What I found interesting about him, his thoughts was, how uncomfortable it was being a deep value manager, how stressful it was, the kind of churn of ideas and stocks where you probably hold them just, just for a short period. And he said, ultimately, it reduced the quality of, of, of the offering. You know, you have to keep generating these ideas. That's got to be stressful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd never really thought about, I mean, obviously being value manager has been a <laughs> terrible place to be for 10 years. Well, but, till, till now. Yeah, yeah, until, until very recently, sorry, I should add that. But yeah, undoing bias, you know, I think, once you've had a bad beat with a company, made the wrong decision, I thought it was interesting that once you're emotionally attached, he talked about this with NVIDIA, um, sold at completely the wrong time and, f and for, the, for the wrong reasons, that he just didn't touch it. You know, he passed it on to another analyst. They still look at NVIDIA, they don't own it, but they're still interested. I think that's really important. I think, and again, on the sort of, you know, when to sell, that there are two things that, you know, okay, so you can be a, you know, very successful, you know, professional portfolio manager like Dan, but actually those are things that, you know, every investor deals with, you know. Um, it's been sort of, this has been discussed before by you know, other people, but you know, we talk, everyone in investment tends to talk a lot more about you know, when to buy, how to buy, and, and much less about sort of selling and stuff. And I think, I think a lot of investors you know, obviously make mistakes there. And then also, yeah, being emotionally attached to stocks or, or indeed funds or ETFs or whatever it is. You know, we're humans, we can't help that. And, but obviously, you know, it, it does affect decisions. Yeah, I mean, with that mindset, you know, obviously if you're self-directed and you, you invest your own pension, you pick your own funds, then if, if you have to exclude one, uh, maybe having the option not to touch a particular stock isn't really going to be, you know, on the cards. But it's probably fortunate that NVIDIA is not the biggest company in the world. I mean, obviously it's massive now, but, uh, but don't touch something once you've got burned. I think that is probably a good mindset. That's a good lesson to learn. A anything else that jumped out at you? Yeah, I think I think I like what you said at the end about people not in the industry not being comfortable admitting they're not perfect. I mean, ultimately, that's what this show is about: getting people who like to give the facade of perfection to be a bit more sort of forthcoming with the fact that they don't always get it right. I love the point he made about a uh, factor of underperformance and probably selling at the wrong time was the sort of the pressure on active managers, the fact that you can look at the scoreboard every day and see how well your fund has done. And ultimately, I love it because it's a point I've made in the past. But I think it's important because as an active manager, particularly in the US equities, it's tough not to look over your shoulder ETFs and, and make poor decisions on account of the fact that the industry is moving one way and it's been so hard to outperform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got to be a lot of pressure, doesn't it? Just that constant you know, everybody knows how good you are on, every, on any given day in, and in, in a market like that where, you know, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of space to hide over the last sort of decade or so. Well, that was our interview with Dan Davidovitz. Now I want to say thank you all listeners for listening. Thank you, Dan, for listening. Uh, and it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm -hmm.